This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. I'll be taking the next few weeks off to get some remodeling done on my body. Hip hip hooray! And in the meantime, Alex Ashkin, our uh, new participant in the Big Talk team, will take over and today he's interviewing a very fascinating fellow by the name of Doug Bauder. So uh, Alex, take it away! Thank you very much, Michael. Here we are with Doug Botter, former director of the Indiana University LGBTQ Plus Cultural Center and man about town. <laughs> Not so much about town these days, but... <laughs> well, certainly in our minds. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Doug, for joining us. You've been heavily involved in Bloomington and the various communities you've lived in really for the past 35, 40 years of your life. Your background originally was in theology, attending Moravian College and then uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, correct? Well, you've done your homework. (laughs) Well, that's what we're, uh, you know, expected to do. I was really struck by this because I was not so um, familiar with uh, the Moravian denomination. Some of the concepts really struck me because um, I've always found the role of a pastor or, you know, someone working in the church as being sort of a community leader. But there were some things that truly stuck out when doing a little bit of research into what makes Moravian Uh, teachings unique. And perhaps I might be a little off. One thing that I came across that seemed to be a little bit more prominently emphasized was some of the writings of a gentleman named uh, Bishop uh, Christopher Shaw. Clarence Shaw, yes. Clarence Shaw. And uh, sort of the spirit of the Moravian church and sort of the interesting aspects of it to me that truly stuck out were the concepts of happiness and unintrusiveness. There was a phrase that I had never seen before in my time learning about various denominations, which was the happy sinner. And the concept that um, there are people who understand that they've done wrong and that in a way are imperfect, but their relationship with the church and with their community sort of helps them overcome these faults and help them become more complete. That's an amazing accurate portrayal. And, and, and it speaks to my own personal experience, but um, five characteristics that Shaw speaks about and joy or happiness is one, unobtrusiveness, respect for others, mm-hmm. and service is one of the third, uh, is a third of the five characteristics that he acknowledges. Um, and that's been, that's been very much a part of my, my life, my experience, um, the development of my own theology. Fellowship is another thing which speaks to the issue of community, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, that happy sinner, I had forgotten that phrase, but it, it, it speaks to the humility, I think, we need to a, approach 
any aspect of our lives that none of us is perfect, but we all have things to offer to the, the, the community and, um, and we do so in a spirit of joy. Yeah, one, I found that absolutely beautiful. And sort of that coupled with that concept of unintrusiveness or personal respect, I think leads to an interesting perspective that I think may, and as you sort of said, has influenced you in the past. There seems to be a distinct break from certain other denominations where it seems to be less specifically emphasized in terms of um, evangelizing. Almost that instead of going out and trying to convince the public, convince people that they are somehow incomplete without that presence of the church or without the presence of fellowship, is to sort of um, live your life in a way that is sort of admirable where people would want to uh, sort of replicate that and the role of the church being sort of a bit of a stepping stone to finding your place. Do you think that was sort of a catalyst in terms of when you kind of went through your own period of self-discovery that Mm -hmm. there was sort of, there's got, there has to be a place almost for people who, are going through this struggle of self. I've long felt that the Moravian Church was in a distinct place to understand the issue of difference when it came to sexual orientation. It took our denomination longer than others to to accept gay pastors. That just happened um, a, a few years ago, whereas some other denominations stepped up to the fore earlier. But I always felt that our respect for people who were different, whether it was racially or even religiously. I, I never grew up with a sense that people who were Jewish or Muslim were somehow less significant in God's eyes than those of us who were Christian. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized that was a pretty different view than many, many people who claimed to be Christian had. So I, I feel I've often said, because I did a lot of work at IU in the area of multiculturalism, and I often said I understood that concept well before it was a popular term. It's what I grew up with. It's in in our home over the holidays, we often had people from uh, the Caribbean or South Africa who were who were part of the uh, college in Bethlehem at Moravian College as our guests in our home. And the, the distinction that too many people make regarding race or religion or even gender was just never uh, a, a strong emphasis as I was growing up. So I feel very fortunate. And I think that's one of the gifts that the Moravian Church has given to me. The church does seem to have built this foundation of acceptance and inclusion. Was there sort of a point where when you were still serving as a pastor that you felt that there was a little bit of discordance or lack of cohesion between what you hoped to do or what sort of community you want to build, the institutions or other forces that sort of might have been trying to neatly put your role into a box. Because I feel like a lot of times people don't necessarily step away from the church, particularly when you know, you grew up in a relatively small town, you know, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It is 
indelibly sort of tied to the Moravian church. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, you know, it sounds like you really grew up with that as a core part of your upbringing. So it seems like that had to be a little bit of um, a leap of faith. Yeah. Are you talking about coming out? Um, A little bit of either. I mean, either in terms of coming out or in terms of once you've done so, you pretty much jumped into doing community work out in mm-hmm. Madison, correct? Right, that's exactly right. So I was serving in a uh, small rural community in southern Wisconsin, uh, beginning to discover what it meant to be a gay man in my 30s at that point in time. I, would, I had just recently come out, and I found a vibrant community in Madison that included new friends like Tammy Baldwin, who's now, of course, a senator. She was a county commissioner. Russ Feingold, who was oh, wow. in the state. I mean, these became contacts for me. And I realized as I was coming out, I was meeting more and more people, including a group of gay dads who I associated with. More and more, I realized that when people could be honest about who they were, that that's what was going to change people's hearts and minds. And so I started doing that within the denomination. I became open to the members of my, my, uh, a very small rural congregation. They were amazingly accepting. And as I was pastoring that church part-time, I then took uh, over this position with a social service agency for queer people in Madison, worked actually for, for the mayor there for a few years. So it was an interesting juxtaposition of uh, religious and secular work, but I, I really felt I was called to do that, that the more I became comfortable with myself, the more I needed to help other people do that as well. Mm-hmm. And that then translated to moving to Bloomington and, and seeing this kind of as my life work for 25 years. It was an integration of sexuality and spirituality in a way that I just felt that was my calling. It almost seems like the role seemed to be partially being the pastor, but also sort of that uh, concept of being a shepherd of men. The idea of sometimes we all sort of are going about our lives, but we need somebody to just sort of make us feel safe, not only within our community, but almost by ourselves, feel safe and complete. Because we're all kind of going through a journey through our entire lives. Yes. And I've had those people in my life. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I can remember very specifically when I was just deeply distraught about what I, my future held uh, an elder in the, uh, an older man who happened to be a bishop in our church said uh, it was very accepting and, and, and suggested to me that I think your role is to be a prophet within our denomination. I was not ready to hear that (laughs) when I was going through a divorce or whatever, but he saw a potential in me and he was, had had long been a spiritual mentor of mine. So yes, I think we all need um, a mentor of sorts. And I've had several of those in my life. And it seemed again, maybe that's my place now for other people. And I had the privilege here at IU, of being that for a number of students. Was there a particular moment where that sort of started to begin to click? When was a moment where you sort of started seeing that same level of leadership in your secular work? 
Alex, you're asking tremendous questions. <laughs> and I actually am remembering a moment Five years into my pastorate in a little church in southern Wisconsin, I came out to the board mm -hmm. because I basically was telling them I was taking on this additional position in Madison, and I wanted them to be aware of it because it was going to be a public position. And so for the first time, I came out to the board of this congregation, and they were a little surprised, but they were exceedingly accepting. And these were rural Farm folks, not highly educated, but very loving people. Mm -hmm. And a week after I had that conversation, um, I was visiting one of the parishioners who was uh, a, a woman who was facing a hysterectomy. I, I went to just be supportive and um, offer some prayer. And she and her husband were sitting around their kitchen table. And, and they started to cry when I visited them and, and, and was anticipating, I had no idea what the tears were about, but they said, we have a question for you and we've never told anyone this, but they had a son who wasn't gay, but a son who had married uh, some years prior to because he had gotten some girl pregnant. And they wondered whether it was right for them to love that grandchildren born out of wedlock as much as the children that were born after the son and daughter-in-law got married. I, I almost wanted to laugh and cry as they were telling this, but they were in deep distress as they were telling me this. And we had a great conversation, but they said, we never could have told you this, Doug, if you hadn't been honest with us about your struggle. Mm -hmm. And it opened a door for me or a window, I guess, to say, man, we need to be honest with each other about the issues in our lives and be more vulnerable and, and I, and I think that, and, and other instances, but that in particular freed me to say, I, I need to be honest, I need to be more open, and, and, and maybe can help other people with, with their issues, and that just took off. I stayed in that congregation, by the way, for another five years, and continued mm -hmm. to, to be, a, uh, I think, a fairly good pastor there. One, I think that's a beautiful little anecdote, but I think you just touched on something that seems to be relatively thematic throughout your life, which is the best leadership and the best guidance you can give also requires some level of um, openness or vulnerability from oneself. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, was there ever a point where you were really sort of challenged by that? I mean, obviously, the coming out must have taken a tremendous amount of sort of soul searching and a little bit of courage, particularly when going to your parishioners board. I think young people particularly kind of struggle sometimes when talking to someone who they view as a leader because they uh, almost lack that sense of like, they've seen the same things or have dealt with similar things. Is there a point where you really were like trying to search for how to um, express yourself in a way that really allowed others to jump in and explore? Let, let, let me just interrupt by saying that story uh, about that wonderful couple, and I believe Ray is still living, Dolores has since passed, um, but that, that story is one I've repeated on a number of occasions. So there are stories of experiences I've had 
with people that just come to the fore when I'm in conversation with someone. And often it's just telling someone else's story will free people up. And, and I, I think some years ago, I, I realized that one of the things I do well is connect the dots. Mm-hmm. I hear something and I say, well, here's an example of that that has been important in my life. And it's that simple kind of sharing, I think, that um, at least the students who've responded to me have said, I really appreciated when you told me that story. Or, And speaking of students, one of the things that has been on the forefront of my mind is you got to sort of see the evolution of a campus through a tremendous amount of change. A little bit culturally, a lot of it being almost due to changes in technology. Coming to work at IU in 94. November of 94, almost 26 years ago now. That was, at that time, you know, we still, most people were communicating by snail mail, you know, everyone was sort of of using analog tools, in a sense, to uh, communicate, build community, and so on. So was there ever an instance where you sort of started to come to realization that, like, these different tools are going to change the way we approach community building. It was my partner, who's now my husband, who was a, he's now retired from the School of Informatics, who kind of brought me into the 21st century. He introduced me to email. And when the office opened, we weren't even using email very much. But I began to see how students were communicating. I never got into the tweeting the Twitter account before I left the office, but I, we, we were doing Facebook. And it was the students who, working with me, uh, would often do the creative work in the office. I mean, we had a number of student volunteers and even staff members who helped with all of that. But I certainly quickly saw the value of, of uh, social media. We opened in uh, just before Thanksgiving in 94, and in January of 95, we had our first board meeting Faculty, students, and staff uh, were an advisory board, and I took to that meeting statistics of all the drop-in people who had dropped into the office, all the people who had phoned the office. I don't think we had email statistics at that point yet. And I remember Bob Arnuff, who uh, is a community leader in his own right, and and who was a a professor in the School of uh, Education and had been on the search committee. He said, Doug, these statistics are amazing for a brand new office. We had just been in operation for six weeks. He said, but what what would be really important are some stories, some scenarios behind this. Who are the people you're talking to? What are the issues they brought? From then on and through the remainder of my term in that position, I would do a monthly report citing maybe 20 stories of students, faculty, alumni, parents, community leaders who would contact us And that fleshed out kind of what we were doing. It was that storytelling that made all the difference. I used it in relating to um, state legislators, uh, administrators, the university president, my boss and the dean of students, and they all valued knowing the the kinds of uh, people we were providing support for. There has to be some level of intellectualizing or sort of putting uh, these understandings when you're working with a university almost into like an academic structure, you know, 
trying to understand it, you know, what are so, sort of understanding the big picture issues going on, what sort of affects people. Was there ever a point where you were just caught by something out of left field where it's like, it's, it sounds like you guys were sort of started putting these um, procedures in place to kind of gain a little bit more of a quantitative understanding of your community and how to reach out to people. But was there ever a point where something just was like, oh, wow, we did not see that. You're like, this is just a total curveball. Every day was a little bit different in that regard. You know, Mike Pence was governor uh, during some of those years. Um, Indeed. <laughs> yeah, so there were surprises that came out of some of the things we could anticipate, but some just came out of the blue, whether it was political or there was a, a professor in uh, the School of Business who may still be there who um, had some just awful things on his webpage and, and students were up in arms about the things he had on his personal webpage that were homophobic. So we tried to deal with each of these things as they came to us. And the fortunate thing was from, from day one, we were building allies. There was tremendous support in this community for the establishment of this office. And I did everything I could to strengthen those ties, whether it was at the law school or uh, those congregations in the community that were queer friendly or uh, folks in city hall I attended a lot of meetings, had a lot of coffee with folks, and realized what an amazing community and campus this was. And so building on that relationships, I always knew where to turn when something happened that I wasn't quite sure how to address. I had a friend at, um, again, in City Hall or at a congregation here, whether the Jewish or Christian community, or the school board, mm -hmm. um, a trustee. It, it just... It just evolved and, um, and the support continued to grow. So um, I, I'm not, I'm, I can't think of a particular instance, but there were often surprises that would come. <laughs> and, and as the years went on, I, I knew who to call. That yeah. was the beauty of the experience. You were involved with a lot of different groups throughout both your tenure at IU, but just as a Bloomington resident. You mentioned prior to us sort of jumping into the interview that you've been spending time working with uh, St. Thomas Lutheran Church. Of course, you're still active within Bloomington United, being one of its founding members, which has always been a fascinating, very powerful group. Well, um, vocal and um, I would say uh, emblematic group of Bloomington, people who are advocates, people who want to show the compassionate side of the community. Heck, even when we talk about uh, the Quarrymen or Quarrylands Men's Chorus, a fantastic group of individuals who I believe you uh, did a little bit of singing with back in the 2010s. Uh, I, I was a founding member of that group, and I'm missing singing with them very much right now. We're doing some things online. We actually sang at the Shalom Community Center uh, Fireside Gala, but it was all, it was Zoom. Uh, we had Zoom <laughs> chorus, and it, it came together very well. So, uh, yes, I, 
felt this community gave me a tremendous opportunity to do some important work at a time in my life when I was a little bit adrift. I came here not knowing quite what I, I came to Bloomington to be with my partner, having no idea what I was going to do. And I received so much um, that I just felt it was time to pay it forward, I guess. And so I found lots of ways to do that. And despite even being retired now, after having spent 25 years with IU, working with student support services, and then the LGBTQ Cultural Center, you still seem to have that drive. Uh, you had an interview with Bloom Magazine, I think, earlier in the year, where they talked to you briefly about your uh, upcoming memoir, The Privilege of Being Queer. There was an interesting little blurb that was in there that said you kind of hope for it to be part memoir, part campus resource. The thing that struck me, Alex, over the years, and I did not anticipate this, but because Bloomington and IU in particular, because of the history of the Kinsey Institute, Bloomington is a, a unique place to have had an opportunity to deal with queer issues. We would get calls every week from campuses around the country, and I'm guessing at least 300 over the years that I was there, would call and say, we're thinking of forming a support service or an office for our queer students. And we know that you've been doing this for quite some time. How in the world did you do this in Indiana? They would <laughs> always ask that question because they had a limited view of what Indiana <laughs> is and had no idea about Bloomington or about the Kinsey Institute, mm -hmm. or about Herman Wells. And in the last couple of years, what I would say is, well, you need to stop thinking Mike Pence, <laughs> and you need to start thinking Pete Buttigieg. And they got it. Mm -hmm. They realized that they had a limited view of things. But yeah, again, I felt very good about being a, a consultant of sorts for other campuses. And over the years, we have won some national awards, but I've noted other campuses that didn't have an office when we started in 94 have also uh, uh, won the Campus Pride Award, I think it's called the organization. So I feel like it's sort of the pebble in the pond image of what we've been able to do here really has impacted. And I know people have gone on to, students have gone on to other communities, to corporations they're involved in, to social service agencies, much better prepared to deal with this aspect of diversity because of their time at IU. And I know people who came to IU because this office was there mm -hmm. and they weren't necessarily gay students or queer students. Uh, they were students who valued IU's commitment to diversity. This was one of those areas. Thank you so much, Doug Botter former director of the Indiana University LGBTQ plus cultural center for helping us just understand what's going on in the community right now and taking the time to talk to us about building a community, particularly right now when we're a little bit more distant, at least physically, how to bring us together spiritually, how to bring us together through friendship and fellowship. My pleasure. Have a wonderful afternoon, and to all of our listeners out there in Radioland, I hope you have a great day. This is Alex Ashkin signing off.